Welcome to campus. It's a beautiful morning. This is the day that the Lord has made. We're rejoicing and glad in it. I know you sense God's presence here today. I do. If you're joining us online, welcome. We're thrilled you've joined us. We are in a series called This I Believe, and one of the habits that we want to form in this series for these many weeks is to recite one of the historic creeds together to remind us all of the foundations of our faith. The Apostles' Creed is so named because it has 12 points. There were 12 original apostles, and so these 12 points associate uh, with that number, and so therefore called the Apostles' Creed. It's about 1,700 years old. It predates uh, the, the formation of the Orthodox Church or the Roman Catholic Church or the Protestant Reformation. This is a creed along with the Nicene Creed that are the historic creeds that all Christians everywhere in all times agree that this is what we believe as Christians. So it is an historic confession of the Christian faith, and we want to uh, share it together. And so we're going to read that together as we begin today's message, and then uh, we'll remain standing to hear today's scripture from Matthew chapter 28. So if you're able to stand, please stand, and we will recite the creed Together, when we get to the phrase, the Holy Catholic Church, just a reference here, as I mentioned, the creed predates the formation of the Roman Catholic Church, and so it's confusing sometimes for us Protestants, but Catholic simply is a word that can be translated universal. So you say Holy Catholic Church, it just means all Christians everywhere, and so that's clarifying, I hope. Are you ready? Let's say it together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of the Father, and will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And now from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28, and verse 19. This is Jesus speaking, and he said, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. My God inspires today through his word. You may be seated. Thank you so much. Today's subject in this, I believe, is baptism in water. Now, let me just say that it is really important. Here's an understatement. It's really important for Christian people to understand the significance and the priority that we should place on water baptism. Jesus gave us just two ordinances, or to describe them differently, they're ceremonies or sacred practices. We call them sacraments, sacred practices, that we are to observe when we gather together for corporate worship. One is the sacrament, the sacred act of Holy Communion. The other is water baptism. Baptism is something that Jesus commanded us to do. If you look on the screen from our text again, Matthew 28, 
19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, that's the Great Commission. And let me just remind you, there are two great things in Christianity. There's a great commandment. This is where Jesus says that you are to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. It's a great big thing, the great commandment. Love God, love your neighbor. Now, we'll just go off message just for a moment to remind you that your neighbor is not just your next-door neighbor. Your neighbor is anyone else in the world. So that guy that you hate, you got her pictured? That, that person that you hate is your neighbor. So it's not easy, but it is a command to love. Now, some of you would say to me, push back right now and say, look, I'm going to not listen to you if you're going to ask me to love that guy because I hate him. So your prayer needs to be, God, there's no way in the world I'm going to ever love that, that girl again. So no. So your prayer is, Lord, help me because you know there's no way after what they and then the story. There's no way. So, you, so your prayer is, God, you're going to have to help. You're going to have to give me grace that I don't have right now to extend love to a person like that. And so it's not easy. No one said it was easy, but it is the command. Love God, love your neighbor. Just made everyone miserable right there on the, at the <laughs> beginning of the service. The other great thing in Christianity is the Great Commission, which we've just read from Matthew 28. To go in the world, preach the gospel, make disciples, baptize them. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So you can see uh, from Matthew 28, 19, which we just read, that baptism is clearly and prominently embedded inside the mandate to preach the gospel to the whole world. Go and make disciples, baptize. Go and preach the word, baptize. Teach. So water baptism is actually the defining mark, if you will, of a Christian. Some groups have symbols, they have icons, they have family crests, they have patterns, they have tattoos, etc. In Christianity, baptism in water is the mark that you are a Christian person. It symbolizes to everyone around you that you are a follower of Christ. It's the public witness to the world that you have decided to follow Jesus. And so the scripture is clear. After we've received Jesus as our personal Savior... We are instructed to be baptized. Now, I should warn you, this is not a proper sermon this morning. This is, this is my attempt to collate some of the high points of an understanding and the importance of water baptism and just unpack that for you so that you have the best perspective that I can give you. It's, it's not a proper sermon, so I just want to teach just for a little while today, and I hope you can appreciate that. Look at, look at uh, the book of Acts chapter 2 on the screen with me. This is the day of Pentecost. 120 men and women now have been infused with the person and work of the Holy Spirit. I mean, as pyrotechnics is a big deal. Uh, this is a rushing wind, tongues of fire, speaking languages you've never learned. This is the day of Pentecost, and these 120 men and women spill out onto the street. This is next week's sermon, by the way, baptism in the Holy Spirit. Today's baptism in water. Next week is baptism in the Holy Spirit. You don't want to miss that. And... So 
thousands of people in town for the Pentecost weekend in Jerusalem, and they say, these folks, these folks have lost it. They're drunk. They've been partying, and it's only 9 o'clock in the morning. Peter stands up in front of this crowd of thousands, and he explains to them, we are not drunk as you suppose, but this is that which was spoken of by Joel the prophet, that in the last days God would pour his spirit out on all flesh. And so he's preaching them this sermon about Jesus and his resurrection. The people are, are convicted by this message that, that Jesus, the one that they recommended be crucified just 50 days earlier, is both Lord and Christ. God has raised him from the dead. And they go, uh-oh. And they have, they have an oh stink moment corporately. And they go, what must we do to make up for this mess? What, what must we do to be saved? And this is Peter's response. Each of you must turn from your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So, there's the instruction. This is the response. So what are some of the reasons why people do not get baptized? Let me just give you a, a brief list. Number one, they don't understand why, that it's all that important. You know, you may be a person and you say, well, look, I've been in a church for a long time, but no one ever made a big deal out of it, so I just never got baptized. That's a reason. Another reason is uh, that you may come from a tradition that, that practices the baptism of infants, you say, well, when I was a tiny baby, I was baptized, and so that I'm covered. Um, we do not practice infant baptism here at Union Chapel, and I don't want to make a fuss about this. Reasonable, God-fearing, thoughtful Christian people for 2,000 years have disagreed on this question. Should we baptize infants in the church? And so it's a, it's a, big, it's a big question, and it's not easily reasonable people will disagree about it. We choose not to baptize children for one basic fundamental reason, and that is you cannot find the practice anywhere in the New Testament. You never see the Christians in the New Testament baptizing babies. We dedicate babies here, putting the impetus on parents and guardians. Will you, in presenting this child, do you confess your faith in Christ? Will you model the gospel? Will you teach them the importance of the practices of the Christian faith? until they are old enough for themselves. And those are the kind of commitments we ask parents and guardians to make with children, infants in our church. So you may be from a tradition. This is why you've not been baptized as an adult because you were baptized perhaps as an infant. Another reason that people do not get baptized is because of pride or modesty. You know, I don't, wanna, I don't want anyone to see me wet. You know, I pay a lot of money to have my hair done and I don't wanna look like a wet dog. This is not a problem that I would refer to, for example. <laughs> it's, hilar it's hilarious to watch young boys, teenage boys, uh, when they're baptized. Because almost without exception, they come out of the water and they start immediately fussing with their hair. They don't know what's actually happening. They're, they have an intuition about the future it's not a conscious reality, but subconsciously they know someday I won't have any hair on my head, and so I've just got to make it look as good as I can while I still have it. <laughs> hey, boys, look at me. I am your future. <laughs> Another shocking moment in the sermon today. Another reason folks may not be baptized is because they're not sure of their faith. You know, I'm just not confident that my, have, 
proper faith in Christ, and so there's some reluctance there. And then this all leads to questions. There are common questions that occur around the subject of water baptism. Let me try to answer a few of those. For example, what is baptism? Let me try to define it. It's the physical act, which requires three parts. You need a priest, you know, a pastor, you need a candidate, and you need some water. And if you have those three things, then you can perform a baptism. The word baptism comes from a Greek word from the original New Testament language, uh, baptizo, which literally means to dip or drench, soak or immerse. And just about all the scholars concur that immersion is probably the preferred means of baptism, although some traditions do all kinds of other application of water. But immersion is probably the New Testament practice, uh, most likely. And so that's what we prefer. So baptism is an outward sign of an inward and spiritual grace. Again, we're answering the question, what is it? Let me say it differently. It is a sacred outward act symbolic of the inward work of regeneration in our hearts. Say it another way. It is an outward physical act that has inward and spiritual effect. It is very powerful. It's a physical activity with natural resources like water and our own physical bodies, but it has a spiritual dynamic. It's a means of grace. The grace of God flows in a spiritual way in this sacred act, this activity of water baptism. It's very powerful. It's the same with Holy Communion. Holy Communion is an outward physical act with bread, physical bread and wine, if you will, symbolic of the broken body and shed blood of Christ that has a very powerful spiritual effect. It's a means of grace. The grace of God flows through the, the practice of this sacrament, the sacred act of remembering the broken body and shed blood of Christ. It's, it's awesome. It's powerful. That's why Jesus wants us to practice this. And so both of these sacraments are described as a means by which God's grace flows into our lives. They are, did I mention they're very powerful? Very powerful things. If you talk to some of the 23 or 24 25 people who are being baptized in our services this morning, after they've been baptized, they will have something positive to say about it because it is a very powerful thing. So that is what baptism is. That's how we might define it. It is an outward sign of an inward and spiritual grace. Here's another question. What is the purpose of baptism? Well, first, it helps us identify with Christ. We follow his example. We know that Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River by a guy named John the Baptist. That's how he got his nickname, John Baptist. He's baptizing people in the Jordan for the remission of their sins. And so Jesus submits to baptism and the baptism of John, so we identify with Christ. The second purpose is that God commands it. 77 times in the New Testament, we find that Greek word baptizo. So we see people being baptized all over the place in the New Testament, and Jesus actually commanding it to be done. Thirdly, it also shows that you're a believer. You know, it's your coming out party. It's your public witness. It's your advertisement for Jesus. This is your, I'm taking a stand by submitting my life to Christ, and I want everybody to know it. So here I am. It shows that you're a believer. And then fourthly, you declare your allegiance to Christ. It's the public declaration of your faith. It's an illustration of what's happened to you in Christ. 
There's an interesting verse in Luke chapter 12. This is Jesus speaking. This is just before the trial and uh, the betrayal and the crucifixion. And this is what he said, Luke 12, 50. He said, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Now, again, this is just days before his own death. Note that he, he, he calls this a baptism. What, what is happening here? I mean, why didn't Jesus just say, I have, a, I have a death to die. I have a crucifixion to suffer. You know, how great is my distress? Why would he use the analogy of baptism? Well, the reason that he would do that is because baptism is actually a symbol of our own death. He used it as a symbol, a metaphor for his own death and how distressful that was to him. And now we can make that application because when we submit ourselves for baptism, we are saying, I am dead to myself. I'm dead to my plans, my dreams, my desires, and I anticipate a resurrection to a new life submitted to Christ and his plans, his dreams, his purposes for my life. So baptism is a symbol of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and we become participants in that death. Our baptistry is actually portable. It was originally built by one of our parishioners and beautifully done, and before we put some paint on it, it it had wood veneer on it, and many times people would say, that looks like a casket. And that actually works. Essentially, that's what it is. The only difference between a casket, the only thing we don't do with it is we don't put a spray of flowers on the lid, which would really freak people out. But this is the symbol. This is what we acknowledge is actually happening. This is the death. You, you enter the water, you say, I'm, I'm dead to my life. I am submitted now to Christ. I am no longer my own. I've been bought with a price. I, I am no longer have possession of my own life. And so I'm dead to myself, my old life, my old ways. And as you enter the water, then you also associate with Jesus in his burial. I'm dead, I'm buried, and as you come out of the water, I'm resurrected to new life. This is the richness of the symbolism, and this is actually the commitment being made. This is the grace of God and the power of God released for this very purpose. Look on the screen at Romans chapter 6. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So you see the association. Look at Colossians chapter 2. For you were buried with Christ when you were baptized And with him you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. There it is again. My favorite reference is 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. So you are dead to the old and you are alive to the new. Praise God. Old things have passed away. Your old person is gone. There's a new species of being. God has recreated you into the image of Christ, and you are a new person with a fresh start and a new beginning. Glory to God. This is amazing grace. Amazing grace. 
So baptism is like a public witness of what's happening to you. Beth and I had just celebrated our 46th wedding anniversary on August the 20th, 46 years. It's an accomplishment. I stood at an altar. Both of us were 22 years of age. Uh, read, interpret, young and stupid. Nobody knows what they're doing when they're 20 years old. Most people 20 years old believe they know exactly what they're doing at all times. And that's just normal. You know, you feel like I've lived a long time and I know what's going on. <laughs> you don't know anything. <laughs> Trust me. So don't, you know, just maintain a learning posture. That will be best. Don't get cocky. You'll get in trouble. So I stood at an altar, and our dear pastor looked at me, and he started saying things like about, about this little girl next to me in front of God and my family and friends at the altar to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer or poor, can I get a witness, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death <laughs> do us part. And I said two words that changed my life forever. I said, I do. <laughs> what a dope. You have no idea what you're, you have no idea what you're talking about. You have no idea what you're doing. But the best you understand it, you're giving yourself to it. And that's what we did, and we've honored those vows, but it sure did make a difference in our lives. Wow, those two little words, I do. What if, now that Beth and I have been married for 46 years, what if I went to Beth today and I said, honey, look, we've been married all these years, and I'm glad I married you. I have no regrets about that. You've been wonderful in every way, and I want to continue to be married to you, and I, I, and I love you. However, I don't want anyone to know it anymore. And so I'm going to take my wedding ring off and I'm not going to wear it anymore. And anytime I'm out and about or traveling or anywhere else in the, in the world, I'm not going to mention that I'm married. And if, even if someone asks me if I'm married, I'm not going to admit to it. Is that okay with you? <laughs> what kind of response do you think I would get from that? That little pistol right over there. <laughs> what are you talking about? It's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life. What do you mean you don't want anybody to know? What kind of love is that? What kind of commitment is that? You don't, you don't want to tell anyone. That's just not going to work. I mean, that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Now, let's make the application. A Christian who won't get baptized won't get all wet for Jesus, has to be questioned at the level of their sincerity and their devotion. Baptism is how you publicly identify your place in the family of God. So it's very serious, very important. Now here's a question that comes up from time to time. Do you have to be baptized to be saved, to be forgiven of your sins? Do you have to go through the process of water baptism to get ready for heaven? 
Some Christian traditions actually teach that baptism is what saves us. This is called baptismal regeneration or baptismal salvation. We do not teach or believe that to be true here at Union Chapel. If you look on the screen at Mark 16, this is a verse that uh, some of these traditions or, or uh, tribes use to justify the idea that you have to be baptized in water to be saved. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. And so you can see that phrase. But whoever does not believe will be condemned. Now, any reasonable person and anyone who understands the original language can tell you clearly that the operative word, the subject of this, of this, of this, uh, of this statement, the operative word for sure is the verse, and this verse is believe. If you believe, you're saved. If you do not believe, you are condemned. That's the clear message of Mark 16, 16. The issue is belief, not baptism. Let me put it this way. Baptism is to salvation what obedience is to salvation. Think about that. If you are an authentic follower of Jesus, then you will obediently follow him in baptism. That's the command. And if you want to be an obedient, honorable follower of Jesus, then this is what you do. The Bible's clear that an authentic follower of Jesus will have a life that displays evidence of such a faith. Look on the screen at James chapter 2. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? You know, corresponding action relative to what you say you believe. Can such a faith save them? Now, if you read this verse from James and you say, he's just asking an open question. Can you have faith in Jesus, but you don't follow it up with obedient, honorable life? Can that faith save you? And if you see it as an open question, well, I don't know. Can that faith save you? But it's not an open question. It's a rhetorical question. James is simply making the point that if you say you have a meaningful faith, but you don't practice an honorable life that reflects that faith, then of course not. That kind of faith can't save you. Now, here's my statement. Now, listen to me carefully. There is a faith that does not save. Oh, I believe in Jesus. Do you believe in Jesus? Yes. Do you believe he died on a cross 2,000 years ago, claiming to die for the sins of the world? I believe that. Huh. Do you, and I go to church once in a while, too. I'm just like the, the average Christian church goer in America, I go 1.8 times per month. So yeah, I believe. Uh, what about that honorable practice of your faith? Well, you know, nobody's perfect and you know, I do hook up with my boyfriend all the time and I party with my buddies on the weekend and I I practice a lifestyle that's consistent with the current mores and opinions of pop culture. Um, yeah, I believe in Jesus. But you see, a living and vibrant faith that saves is reflective of obedience to the will and plan of God for our lives. What good is a faith that doesn't also have corresponding action, that the deeds follow? Someone said it rather poignantly, that if, that if there's no change in your life and in your behavior, then there's probably no Jesus. Because how is it possible, do you imagine, that you could meet the pre-existent, co-eternal Word of God who spoke the universe into existence with the power of His Word, 
who descended, condescended through the ranks of glory and angels and eternity to a place called earth, living a perfect life and ultimately sacrificing his own life for the sins of the world, that you would actually invite that creator God, savior God into your life and it make no changes. How's that even possible? You could easily conclude you didn't meet the Jesus that I know if it's made no meaningful changes, practical changes in your life. It is pretty quiet now. There is a faith that does not save. But there is a life that wants to honor, please, and obey God. And the first thing God asks us to do after meeting Christ is to be baptized. So when you're saved, the first step of obedience is to be baptized. I mentioned the day of Pentecost earlier when Peter talked to thousands of people. Well, 3,000 people said, I want to be a follower of Jesus. What must we do? And he said, you need to turn from your sins and receive Christ and then be baptized. Well, 3,000 decisions for Christ were made on the day of Pentecost, and that day, 3,000 people were baptized in water. Baptism, then, is the most basic and elemental response to your own salvation. As you come to faith, you follow Christ's example to be baptized. If you're not willing to be baptized, then you might also legitimately be questioned about your own salvation. It is the first act of obedience after you have received Christ as your personal savior. Here's the summary. Baptism does not save you, but it does demonstrate your willingness to obey Christ. Next question. When should I be baptized? When should I be baptized? According to the Bible, a delayed obedience often results in disobedience, and that's never good. It diminishes God's blessing in your life. And let me just make the statement this way. There are no examples in the New Testament of individuals waiting any significant period of time between their conversion and submitting themselves for baptism. Now, here at Union Chapel, I mean, we're constantly saying, okay, here's a class, here's a preparation. Uh, every, once a month, you know, we're going to baptize people. And so we've got, we've got all these processes in place trying to help people take this important step in their life. But the New Testament, there are no classes. There are no training sessions. You know, give it a few weeks and think about it. There's none of that. Understanding baptism's meaning has nothing to do with the timing of your baptism. You don't have to understand all of this. It is not about your personal experience, but rather about your personal obedience. On your notes in your, on, in your app, you'll see that I listed nine different references from the book of Acts. All nine of these these references uh, show people coming to faith and being baptized. And in every one of these cases, all nine of these cases, for example, on the day of Pentecost, I just mentioned 3,000 people make a decision to follow Jesus. Same day, 3,000 people are baptized. Later in the book of Acts, you see people at the house of Cornelius. The gospels preach, people receive Christ. They're baptized that day. Uh, Peter's on this ancient road and he he comes upon this carriage with an Ethiopian in it, this eunuch, and he gets in this carriage and he leads this Ethiopian to Christ. And and they're going down this ancient road. And that day, they finally come up on some water. And the Ethiopian says, what forbids me to be baptized? There's There's enough water. Let's get baptized. That day. And this is the constant, consistent pattern throughout the New Testament. In many parts of the world, A decision to be baptized is a life and death decision. 
We've encountered this as we've done church planting and other mission activities in Central Asia, in the Muslim world, traditionally Muslim cultures. Uh, A baptism uh, with our leaders in Central Asia is a momentous day in a Muslim culture. Most Muslim, Muslim leaders, and especially in the more radical Muslim Islamic countries in the world, a person who converts out of an Islamic culture to Christianity and submits to water baptism, that's, that's akin to a death sentence. It is very, very serious. When it's discovered by your family or other authorities, very harsh repercussions often occur. So when our friends in Central Asia take a group of new believers in Jesus up in the mountains and baptize them in the river or find a, a swimming pool in, in someone, near someone's house uh, and baptize people, a, big, a baptism service is a huge deal because of the implications. It is so countercultural. It is so bold. It is, it is, it is, so, it, it is so sobering. This could cost me my life. And former Muslims who convert to Christianity deal with water baptism with immense sobriety. You know, just a moment ago, I made a a little funny comment about putting a spray of flowers on our lid, you know, on our baptistry, and everyone kind of giggled at that. And And it was appropriate to laugh at that. But, you know, it could be that we don't take this as seriously as we should. Maybe we just don't understand what we're doing. Just trying to make it clear. Scripture commands every believer to be baptized after they believe. My, my Old Testament verse that I find the single most inspiration from, and I quote it often in, when I'm preaching, it just comes out of me. I'll put it on the screen for you. Second Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9. And it says, for the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Depending on the translation you read, uh, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth, looking for people whose hearts are totally committed to him so that he might strongly support them. That's inspiring to me because I believe the eyes of God are looking for people like you and people like me who have a strong conviction and a commitment to live obediently and honorably before God. And when God sees people like us willing to live in such a way, this is when the power of God and the presence of God and the blessing of God and the favor of God comes to us. The wind of God's God's spirit fills the sails of our lives and ministry and it moves us forward, and amazing miracles begin to happen. This is because the eyes of God have seen us, and they know our commitment, they know our heart, and, they, and God knows our desire to honor him, and his blessing flows. It's very simple. When you go all in with Jesus, he goes all in with you. Are you listening? He will bless you, he will strengthen you, he will help you, he'll give you his favor. This is why we are passionate about helping people take their next step of obedience in baptism. Here's one more verse, I'll be done. Look on the screen, it's Mark chapter one. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, 
you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. I talk about living under an open heaven. Well, one way to crack open heaven is through obedience and baptism. Jesus submitted obediently to baptism, the baptism of John Baptist. And when he was baptized, the Bible makes it clear the heavens were open. Heavens were open. This is my son. I am well pleased. And the blessing of God not only flowed to Jesus, but I believe will flow to you and to all of us as we submit obediently to this simple command to be baptized for Jesus' sake. Did you get it? Did you get it? Pastor Glenn's going to come now, and we have candidates uh, ready to be baptized in this service, and we're going to do that. Let me just say to you, if you didn't sign up, you didn't take the class, you didn't prepare in any way to be baptized today, don't let that stop you. We've got extra clothes that we can give you to get home in, extra towels we'll send with you. We've got dressing room over in the chapels all set up, very, uh, very modest, and so, so we will take care of you. So feel free. If you're a person, you've heard this message today and you go, I need to be baptized. This is my, I need to do this and I'm ready. If you're ready, then just make your way up to the front here and, and speak with Pastor Glenn. He'll coach you up a little bit and we will, we will take care of you.